So uh, with that, uh, the final announcement that I often forget is Kingdom Kids, which I will not do today. We have uh, two of our teachers, a power couple here, um, are going to take your children, ages five through eight, if you would like them to go into Kingdom Kids. They'll teach them a lesson. They'll do some crafts. And then they can uh, be brought back, they'll be brought back up at the end of our sermon. Uh, if you'd like to keep your kids with you, we'd love it when families worship together, like we always say. So they will do that. And finally, if I could ask you to stand with me once again as we hear the reading of this morning's sermon passage. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Good and gracious God, we thank you for this, your word, that shows us that you still come to seek us when we stray from you. Holy Spirit, open our ears so that we can clearly hear your truth, and by hearing, believe that Jesus is all we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lydia. Uh, if you've been attending or watching online, you know that we're going through a series uh, entitled Hope for Hard Cases. And uh, we had a wonderful sermon by uh, good brother Joel last week, which I was so blessed by myself. Uh, we're continuing with that series with the story of Zacchaeus. Um, you know, I, was, I get a lot of hiking blogs. Some of you may know I love hiking and backpacking, so I follow all these blogs and uh, I was reading an article um, about a rescue that happened for a, a couple that was hiking. And a lot of the times they'll interview these people so they can help others learn from their mistakes. And they're always happy to do that. And uh, The wife who was hiking with her husband recounted the story of how they were hiking on a trail uh, in Colorado. And they began to suspect that they may be lost. And so they called some of their friends and they said, hey, we think we got on the wrong trail. We may be lost. Uh, we just want to let you know in case you don't hear from us in a couple hours, you'll know that it's because we're lost and we lost cell phone coverage. And uh, so those friends didn't hear from them for a couple hours and they called the rescue, the local rescue team. And, and that rescue team began because they had heard that they had cell service. They began by calling them. Uh, now, in the meantime, this couple was on the trail. They backtracked. They thought that they got on the right trail and they began seeing these phone calls from a number they didn't recognize. And so they ignored them thinking that they were on the right track. Turns out that they got on another wrong trail and they were even more lost. Uh, the rescue team, thankfully, decided not to wait, but got out there, went to the trailhead where they began, and tracked them down and found them. 
And the wife was telling this story, and she was saying in particular, I'm so grateful that they didn't wait for us to call them back. But instead, they came out there and they found us, because it was only when they found us that we realized just how lost that we actually were. If you're a hiker, that's scary stuff, because it happens before you know it. Uh, it's very easy to get lost in the wilderness, even for experienced hikers. And uh, This story of Zacchaeus is a beautiful picture of a man who rejoices, because when God inserts himself into his life, he realizes how lost he was and also how loved and found he actually is. Uh, I also love it because it vindicates short people. I'll just say that up front. As a short man, I feel like this is the short man's Bible passage. The main idea I want us to consider together uh, from this story is, is just this, that Jesus comes looking for us even when we're busy looking out for ourselves. Not very flattering, but it's true, right? Jesus comes looking for you and I, even when we're busy looking out for ourselves. If you're unfamiliar with the gospel, Luke, let me set the context for you just a little bit. Uh, at, at this point in, in Luke's gospel, it's getting towards the end of the story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's actually pretty close. This city of Jericho is not far off from Jerusalem, and in short order, Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem and eventually be crucified and murdered uh, when he arrives there, and he knows that. And so it's actually a really powerful context point for us when we think about this exchange that he has with Zacchaeus because he stops off to save this man who doesn't know that he's lost. Uh, the encounter with Zacchaeus uh, highlights this beautiful truth that uh, Mark pointed out in the law passage that we reflected on in the gospel passage that God uh, has all the willingness in the world to come to you and I even when we're heading in the opposite direction from him. Uh, there's a lot that Luke is very strategic about in telling this story. A lot we don't know about Zacchaeus. There's some things that we do know. Uh, first, in a comedic way, he was short and nobody liked him. How do we know that? Uh, a couple of different ways. One thing in the background that's interesting about this story is that it, it talks about how Zacchaeus came out because he heard that Jesus was passing through and that he decided to run ahead and climb up a tree. It seems like an odd thing, especially for somebody that held a position of power like he did, but he ran ahead and he climbed up a tree. And I was thinking about that. You know, like if you do a family picture or a picture with friends, what do you usually do? All the short people in front, all the tall people in back, right? So everybody could be seen in the photo. You're at a parade with your kids, what do you do? You put them in front, you put them on your shoulders. Uh, nobody wanted Zacchaeus to get through the crowd because <laughs> nobody liked him. Uh, and the reason why is because he was a tax collector. If you don't know what that is, you know, maybe you're like most red-blooded Americans. You say IRS and you're like, okay, I relate. I get that. I don't like the IRS very much. But here in this, in the world that they lived in, a tax collector were particularly hated for a couple of different reasons. Uh, during the time of Jesus' life and ministry, the nation of Israel was under Roman rule and under Roman oppression. And what the Romans loved to do is any empire that they took over, they would tax it to death. They would take all the resources, they would tax people. And one of the ways that they would make that happen is they would get local people to collect the taxes for them. And so tax collectors were people that were going out and participating in oppressing their fellow countrymen and God's people. Now Luke makes 
a point to note that this guy just wasn't a tax collector, but he was a chief tax collector. And what that tells us is that this guy, would, he would be like, if a mob boss was the guy that came to you and said, you need to pay this family for protection or to live here or to do your business here, the mob boss above him would be like a chief tax collector. He was the guy that got a cut of everything that came in. And so what Zacchaeus did was he made a living and he amassed wealth. As Luke points out, he amassed wealth by benefiting from the oppression of his fellow countrymen. And one of the ways that they would do that is he would take the taxes that the Roman government required and then he would add his own tax on top. And so he became wealthy by other people's oppression and suffering. Uh, In Luke 5, actually, it says sinners and tax collectors in the same sentence. Jesus actually says at one point, uh, if somebody acts in an ungodly way, treat him as you would a sinner or a tax collector. They they were the lowest rung of society. They were like bottom feeders to their fellow Israelites. That's one of the things that makes it understandable when we think about the fact that uh, Zacchaeus climbs up into a tree and he has this brief conversation with Jesus and his automatic response is to receive him with joy. You know, there's a very real sense uh, when we think about this man just from what little we know, and we think about how his fellow Israelites might feel, there's a sense in which everybody can conclude this man doesn't deserve to be around a respected rabbi like Jesus. And certainly a man like this doesn't deserve to receive God's grace, right? The thing is, is that God is constantly taking everything that we think we know about who deserves his mercy and grace and throwing it on his head. We've, we've, we've considered this particular point from several different angles. And in a way, this whole series is about reminding us about that aspect of the gospel, that God takes everything we know about what we think we deserve or what we're convinced we don't deserve and throwing it on its head and rearranging that for us. And when we think about Zacchaeus, A man who was hated by his fellow countrymen, who benefited from their suffering, climbing up in a tree and hearing Jesus say, Zacchaeus, you need to come down because I'm having dinner at your house. It's totally understandable that he would receive him with joy. For you and I, uh, one of the things that we um, experience, not only when we're first saved, but the more we grow in our understanding of what God's love is like, and really what it means in our real life, it constantly reminds us that no matter what we're up to or how much we're sinning, it doesn't stop God from coming in and loving us. To the world, that's one of the most offensive aspects of the Christian faith, the fact that God will love people who are so diametrically opposed to him by their very nature, and that he would choose to save people who are diametrically opposed to him and how they live. Zacchaeus is a great A example of that. We, thought, you know, we considered that when we thought about the, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul. Here's a man that nobody would disagree with. People might try and say, look, Paul's a Pharisee among Pharisees. Maybe, you know, maybe he's got an inside deal going with God because he kept the law so well. Nobody in the world would look at Zacchaeus and be like, this guy deserves God's mercy. You know, and as I've gone through the years in, in ministry and, and uh, growing in my own faith, one of the things that I've, I've 
become convinced is uh, one of the worst distortions of the gospel. The central message of the Bible is, um, is this twisting of the gospel that turns it into a cheap grace. And that's uh, something that people will say sometimes, that really God loves you so much and his mercy is so abundant for you that he loves you just the way you are. And he actually doesn't even want you to change. God's love is so overwhelming for you that you don't even need to change. He accepts everything about you just the way you are. And you know, that's a horrible lie because God loves us so much that he doesn't wait for us to change. He loves us so much that when we are at our worst, he invades our life. But he also loves us so much that he won't leave us where he finds us. That he sets out to change our heart, to set us free from the sins that weigh us down. That he sets his power at work in us and changes our desires in a way that we begin to see what he sees as good and beautiful and right. And we desire that as well. But you know, that, that kind of that brings up a different aspect of the gospel that I think is not flattering for any of us. And uh, that's the second point, that the truth is, is that you and I only love God because he loved us first. We only love God because he loved us first. I, you guys have heard me say a thousand times, I'm a people pleaser. So what that looks like in real life is like, if I think somebody doesn't like me, I'm like, that's fine, I don't like that dude anyways, you know? Whatever. But if somebody's like, Brian, man, I really enjoyed hanging out with you, I'm like, oh, well, man, I really like kicking it with you. Well, that's good, because I like hanging out with you too, man. That's good, you know? We tend to think about our relationship with God in the same way. Oh, God, loves, I love you too, God. I, I've always been fond of you. I love that Jesus thing. I love the Bible. I'm into it. Let's do it. Uh, that's not what we were like, right? I think most of us know that. If you think about the point that God saved you, Nobody here was walking around thinking, well, I really wonder how I could love God and please him today, right? We were walking around heading towards self-destruction. God literally grabbed us by the collar, like I do with my dog, <laughs> and saved him from running out in the street and getting hurt, right? Uh, the reality is, is that Jesus always moves towards us. God's love always makes the first move that's what the Apostle John says is 1 John 4, 19. He says, we love God because he loved us first. And then he goes on to talk about how that love translates into loving one another as well. That means that we're also not capable of loving God in a real sense until he pours his love into our life. And it's also true that you and I don't really truly begin to understand the depth of God's love until it invades our life and begins to change us. You know, I, I don't think I really appreciated what God did for me until I had heard somebody explain it to me, hear it taught, read the Bible, and prayed for a number of years. And then it really clicked. This is what the gospel means for me. It means that I actually hated God in my heart, whether I knew it or not. And he still loved me. And he still saved me. That knowing that in God's work, his supernatural work through his spirit in changing us is actually what transforms us into the type of people that love him as well. It changes how we view him, how we understand ourselves, how we view our entire lives. Uh, it's, 
it's real change, the type of change that God promises to bring uh, in and through us. So letting you know I do a lot of discipleship and counseling in our church and it's something I love and one of the most humbling things about that is, is the realization that I have over and over and over again that until people understand that truth, that gospel truth, people have a hard time changing for a number of reasons. And a couple of the ways that I think that people try and avoid coming to grips with that is they make up their own version of why and how God loves them. One of the biggest ones that I see is that people will become convinced that they need to clean themselves up uh, so that God will love them. This happens for a lot of people when they first hear the gospel and it happens for a lot of us as Christians as we try and grow in our faith and deal particularly with spiritual struggles that we have with sin. And underneath that is this desire to convince themselves that they've earned God's love, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just like a starter kit to God's love. Look, I did this stuff, okay, I earned it 2%, but yeah, 98% grace, God, totally, that's fine. I can live with that. Uh, another common way that I people, see people struggle with this is that people begin to convince themselves that they've actually done something to deserve God's love. And you'll hear this a lot, especially from unbelievers. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody, I've said this one million times before Jesus really transformed me. One million times I've said, yeah, I'm, sure, yeah, I'm not perfect. I've done a lot of bad things in my past, but I'm really not that bad. I mean, I do some good stuff too. I'm not the worst guy in the world. So I think, I think God probably loves me because of how I've tried to do well in life. And that's somebody trying to convince themselves in some way, shape, or form that they might actually deserve God's love to some extent. Think about Zacchaeus. If this man knew anything, he knew that everybody in the world hated him. And they had good reason. And think about how Jesus responded to him. Jesus saw him and approached him. And it says that he knew his name. He knew him. He knew all of him. He knew the things that were public and notorious sins that Zacchaeus had committed. He knew all the secret things that Zacchaeus has done that Zacchaeus thought that nobody in the world would know about. Jesus knew all of him. And in front of a world full of people, that were convinced that this man should be despised and hated, he extended friendship to him and mercy and grace and love. He showed him God's generosity. God's generosity to a man who knew nothing but greed and oppression. You see, the scandal of grace, the scandal of God's grace is just this. Uh, one of my favorite professors always used to make this comment when he was teaching us about the reality of salvation. He would say, you know, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is your sin. <laughs> what did he mean when he said that? We don't have anything to do with it other than we give God a reason to judge us. And yet in response to that, he doesn't. Through Jesus, he gives us mercy and grace by faith in him. So the only thing that we contribute is our sin. The scandal of grace is just this. Nobody here deserves God's mercy. If there's anything that God's convinced me of in my own life is that there's not one thing that I have done that means that I deserve God's mercy. 
But God's grace does just the opposite of what we think justice should look like. It invades our life. It breaks into our hard hearts and it radically transforms us with the generosity that we experience through Jesus. How do you guys know my story? I, I'm, I'm a former drug addict and um, alcoholic and when I first got sober, I was a young man. Uh, at that time, I wasn't reconciled with my father and I was, I was really a mess. I, I did a lot of bad things to a lot of people before I got sober. And to be honest with you, I did a lot of bad things after I got sober because I just didn't know how to change. Um, Steve could tell you that, actually. See Steve after the sermon. Early on, uh, what I knew about myself, I was full of self-loathing. I was a very angry young man. I felt like I was a piece of garbage because all I could see was what I had done and how I had lived, and I was convinced of that. I didn't like God very much, if I was honest, and I didn't like other people. And uh, there was a man uh, named Joe C. He was my first in AA. When you get into the program, you get something called a sponsor. It's like a, a, a recovery mentor that helps you in that process. And my first meaningful sponsor was a guy named Joe, Joe C. And and, you know, I was convinced that I didn't deserve any good thing when I started getting sober. And, and Joe didn't treat me the way that I, I think and was convinced I deserved to be treated. What he did was, I was, I was a 24-year-old 20, kid. I just had my first child. I couldn't even pay my own rent or my own bills, still being super dishonest. And Joe treated me with dignity and respect and compassion and friendship. I mean, I remember, I could tell you three different times that Joe came along and literally paid my rent and my bills for me. And you know, his kindness really challenged everything that I thought about myself. His compassion and mercy began to slowly be one of the central things that God used to change how I viewed everything, how I viewed what God may be like, how I viewed myself, how I viewed all my relationships, and what I could do in those relationships as somebody who is now sober. God's generosity is just like that. It slowly seeps into your life and his love slowly takes off all the hard edges in your heart. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly like I do with my pets. <laughs> he does it joyfully because he loves you and he wants you to experience the benefits of that. That brings me to the third point, that when we experience God's love, we're never the same. God's love always, always changes us. It always changes us. Uh, and that, that gives us the right view with how we can understand Zacchaeus' response uh, to Jesus. If you notice, when we read this passage, Jesus makes two very important statements. He makes like a mission statement, then he says something personal about Zacchaeus. He calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. That's kind of biblical code or lingo. Essentially what he's saying is that anybody that's been saved has been saved by faith in the promises of God. Simple as that. That if you hear and see that God promises to save you through faith, that is true and you belong to him. Jesus is literally standing there in front of this man, the embodiment, the fulfillment of those promises and he says about this man who is responding and saying, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to receive God's love. I'm ready for it to change me. Here's what I'm going to do. Jesus said, this is the son of Abraham. Salvation has come to this house. He's not saying that because you're going to do these things, then you'll be saved. You're in the club if you do the right things. What he's saying is, this man has been transformed by the love of God. 
He's a son of Abraham. He's a man who has faith that God's love is for him and changing him. And then he makes this mission statement. It's like he just says it to like all the heavens and the earth. This is why I came. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Yeah, this guy. I mean, could you imagine what that conversation was like? Zacchaeus is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, what? Sinners are in? Yeah. It's going to be full of them. The worst of the worst? Yeah. Look, I got Paul. I don't know if you heard about that. Tax collectors? I want all the worst ones. Short people? Totally, man. I got little stairs, little chairs. I got everything for you up there. Everybody's in. Everybody's in. And so everything that Zacchaeus does and says in this moment is not something to prove that he deserves God's love or it's not a statement saying, I'm going to earn your love. It's just a response. It's, it's the experience of a man who's like, if that's really true and I'm really free, all this stuff that has ruled my life, it doesn't mean all that much. The stuff that I was doing in my old life, I'm ready to give that up. If this is what you're telling me I can have, I'm ready. If you are familiar with this gospel, uh, Luke does this masterful job as an author in comparing this experience with Zacchaeus with another God that's just called the rich young ruler in chapter 18. It's kind of this perfect example of like, this is what real repentance looks like, this is what it doesn't look like. In 18, uh, he records this experience where a, a rich young ruler approaches Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in summary, Jesus says, you need to obey every law of God. This guy's convinced of his self-righteousness, his ability to earn God's love, approach God, that he deserves eternal life. And he says, I've done all those things. And Jesus says, there's one thing that you lack. Give up everything you own to the poor and follow me. And you know what Jesus was saying to that man in essence? Love me more than you love anything else that's ruled you. And the ruler's response, he goes away straight bummed. Says he went away sad because he was very wealthy. Now think about that in comparison to Zacchaeus, a man who had done whatever it took to amass his own little empire. His encounter with the love of Jesus set him free from all of that. Not just his greed or his willingness to hurt people or these idols that he worshipped. It was setting him free of all the baggage and the guilt and the shame that he had deep in his heart because of what he did to get there. He was free. He saw that Jesus was moving in his direction. And when he had that experience, he makes this declaration This is something I can devote myself to. The Spirit of God had changed him to be able to see and understand who God truly was and naturally experiencing God's love. His devotion and affection changed from one thing to another. You know, this story is a beautiful picture of what real repentance is like. And before I talk about this, I want to be very, very clear with you guys. Let's take Zacchaeus for an example. Does anybody here think that Zacchaeus never struggled with greed after that day? Does anybody really believe that? I don't even know the guy, but I would bet anything in the world that's not true. I bet you it was a long road of learning how to love people the way that God had called them to. 
taking two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, three steps back, clinging on to the love of God, growing in his belief and his faith that God was changing him bit by bit. In our confession, um, there's a beautiful statement about what real repentance looks like. Two of my favorite things. It says that repentance is a saving grace. It means it's directly from God and it's, it's part of the whole process of how God saves us and changes us. It also is a gift from God. It's not something that you and I need to conjure up on our own. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. Because it means that if you're sitting around thinking that I need to be repentant on my own, I need to be more sorry for this, all you're doing is condemning yourself. But it's a gift from God. It's something that he says he's going to work into your heart and your life slowly and gradually. There's two ways that that tends to play out for most of us, no matter where we're at in our faith. Uh, One part of the process means that we slowly but gradually learn to think and feel about sin the way that God does. It means we learn to hate sin in the way that God does because we begin to see that it's self-destructive and hurtful for us and other people. Uh, Think about all the sins that you still struggle with. Right? Newsflash. Every person in this room has sins that they're struggling with. Every one of us. Think about the sins that you still struggle with, even in those moments where you're conflicted and discouraged about your favorite sin that you constantly give yourself over to. What genuine repentance looks like is even knowing that that conflict is a sign of spiritual life. It's one of the most important things I've learned is to remind people, hey, if you're having a conflict about this, it's because the love of God is at work in you. Another dynamic that shows us what genuine repentance look, looks like, genuine change, is that we have growing desires that are alien to our old life. We have growing desires that reflect our gratitude and our desire to live in a way that pleases God. And we also become convinced that what God says is good for us actually is because we begin to experience it as we listen and follow him in what he tells us in his word. Even if you are one of those people like I have experienced in my own life where if you're really honest, the most honest thing that you can say is you just don't care that much about a sin that's dogging you, the fact that you're even having that thought means that you are spiritually alive. Think about your life before Jesus. You know, I, sin meant nothing to me. People would tell me what sin was and I'd be like, anyways, okay, back at it. The fact that we even know that we don't care as much as we should and have the type of desires that God says that he's going to cultivate us is a sign of spiritual life. I want to encourage you with that because that means that no matter where you're at, even if you feel emotionally and spiritually dead, frustrated, struggling with a sin, don't care, that doesn't stop God's love from weaving its way into your deepest and darkest struggles. One of the things that I've learned in my own faith, and uh, especially in counseling, is that real change, change that comes from God, is almost always slow and steady. It's almost always slow and steady. Yeah, there's radical conversions. I relate to Zacchaeus. I got sober almost, it's getting close to three decades, and you know what, I never used drugs again from the day that I prayed and God saved me. 
but I can tell you about 12 different things that that same idolatry and addiction substituted over to over the years. But through all that, through all those windy roads, the one thing that was ever present was God's power and his mercy and his grace slowly changing me into a person who got free of those things and saw that the life that God was calling me to was not only good, but it was enjoyable because it brought me freedom and satisfaction and wholeness that I always wanted. Uh, in, in the program of recovery, one of the biggest things that um, my friend Joe taught me is how to do these steps called steps eight and nine. And those steps, in essence, are um, that we become willing to make amends to all the people we had harmed, and then we made direct amends whenever possible. And, uh, you know, when I first read that, I was like, okay, a bunch of I'm sorry's, and then I'm good. Let's get it over with. I'll wrap this up in a week, you know, after years of wrecking people's lives. And uh, one of the things that I learned is amends isn't just about saying sorry. It, it actually means taking action. And uh, one of the most beautiful things about the process of reconciliation that Zacchaeus engages in here and the process of amends is that it, it, it helps us understand something about both our past and our future when we engage in that process. Because when I make amends based on the fact that God's love has transformed me when I go and try and make things right with other people, it's based on the fact that I am seeing that God has set me free from my past. It sets me free from all the guilt and shame and embarrassment and baggage of the past. And it also says something about my future. See, embedded in that process of forgiveness and peacemaking is freedom. That God builds the type of life where we genuinely experience everything that we've always wanted. And that happens in that process of making amends with other people. Uh, one of my biggest amends was um, for a robbery that I committed. I, I was a thief through and through. I can tell you straight up, man, if it wasn't bolted down, I've tried to steal it or stole it at least once. And uh, when I was a kid, we would fish at all these lakes in the town where I grew up. And um, one had this big tackle store and a lot of business in there. And the guy who owned it was this really great guy who would always help us out, give us free you know, gear, um, let us rent boats, stuff like that. And as I got older in the bottom of my addiction, I got really desperate. And I came up with the idea. I told my buddies, I said, hey, let's go rob. We're going to rob that store. And so we did. We went and we robbed that shop and uh, cleaned it out. This is, this is a small business owner, a family man. We cleaned it out. We took everything, all the money, everything, sold it. We, and for years, I walked around super ashamed and embarrassed because that guy was always so generous with me when I was a kid. And when I started this process of making amends, you know, I, this is not a flattering story about me, guys, but I, I was unwilling to go and talk with that man. Some of it was fear and shame. But if I'm also honest, I just wasn't willing to for a number of years. But I finally got to the point where God rounded off those hard edges and I, and I understood that I cannot get free of this stuff and I can't make peace with that man unless I go and make amends. And so I went. And you know, in the interim years, he died. He passed away. Yeah, and so I went to the store and it was actually his son who owned it. And I told the guy the whole story about what had happened and, and uh, how embarrassed I was that I waited so long. And he said, you know, he loved helping kids because he wanted them to grow up to be good people. And he wanted them to experience the joy of being in creation. 
And so standing here, seeing that you've changed and that you've had an experience with God that's changed you, I think he'd be super happy to hear that. So don't worry about it. If he were here, he'd forgive you, and I want you to know that I forgive you. So don't worry about it. And you know, when I walked away from that, I experienced so much freedom. And I experienced so much of God's love through that man and that experience of trying to make things right. And you know what that did? That freed me to be more generous with other people and to love other people more fully with my heart and my mind in a way that God wants us to, the way that he promises he will enable us to. <clears throat> so a couple, just in closing, a couple of things, a couple of pieces of homework I want to give us all. Uh, everybody's going to write an A-step. No, I'm just joking. Maybe you will. If you do, I'd love to hear about it. We use it in our counseling all the time. A couple of things I want to just pose for all of us. If you related to the middle of this sermon, if there's sins that you struggle with that make you feel like you're not growing, or if you're really honest, if there's sins that you struggle with that you just don't care that much about right now, I want you to take time and to talk to God about that. And talk to the people in your life who have experienced that freedom that God's love brings. Because God wants you to know that no matter where your heart or your emotions are, he loves you and his love is at work and that it's changing you. Even when you feel like you can't believe that anymore. If you have things in your life that you've been reluctant or afraid to do in terms of seeking people's forgiveness or making amends with people, I want you to bring that to God and ask him to help you see that the promises that he embeds in seeking forgiveness and loving other people well are still true for you. And I want you to come talk to me and talk to other people who have experienced that in their own life. You see, the love of God always changes us because it never changes. It never changes. No matter how much you and I change and how fickle we are, his love for you and I never changes. And it changes us into people who get free from our past and we're able to live in our present and that seeps its way into our life. Amen? Let's pray, you guys, and thank God. Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you that you are a God of um, forgiveness and love and mercy and peacemaking. We thank you that you are... You're not a God who judges according to what we deserve. Father, I pray that you, would, uh, that you would speak to every one of us through words, through your spirit, uh, through your people in a way that helps us see those areas in our life where we're still struggling with sins, where we're still hard-hearted in other areas where we're filled with shame and discouragement and doubt over things that still dog us. And remind us that your love is more powerful than any of that. Father, I pray that you would turn us into people who are quick to be generous because you've been so generous with us. And that we would be peacemakers and uh, people who bring your love and your light into the world. And we do that all to your glory. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.